Hiya, and welcome to the BT Podcast with Sally Hughes, the straight-talking, no-nonsense podcast written and presented by me, Sally Hughes, and brought to you by Avon. We'll be discussing a different topic each week on all manner of beauty issues, from the practical to the political, the deeply serious to the deliciously superficial, all with a host of industry experts at the very top of their game. In every show, there'll be a Q&A with them and with me, and we really want to hear from you. Ask us any beauty-related question or tell us which topics you'd like us to cover. Tag me on social. I'm Sally Hughes with one L and an I everywhere except on Facebook where I'm Sally Hughes. Get the look. And use the hashtag The Beauty Podcast with Sally. A few years back, a dear, now departed and desperately missed friend of mine awoke from major surgery on a cancer in her lower leg to discover her limb had unexpectedly been saved. What on earth did you do, I said, unable to imagine the relief and head-melting shock of it all. She said, I painted my toenails, and in that moment I'd never understood anything more clearly. I'm endlessly inspired, though rarely surprised, by the significance beauty adopts during times of ill health. Many women, with their bodies out of their hands and at the mercy of disease, take control of their faces and hair. When life feels all at sea, a beauty routine can restore a sense of control, dignity, ritual and privacy. Women looking like themselves when everything else feels unrecognisable can be a treatment in itself and for some becomes a coping mechanism during the hardest of times. Our appearance is so much part of our identity. When this appearance changes through accident or ill health, there can be a process of grief and a great deal of adjustment and adaptation. Hair and lashes may be lost, skin may become extremely sensitive, nails may be damaged. Maybe your appearance is the least of your worries and your health means you have considerably bigger fish to fry. But the chances are that if beauty is already an important part of your life, a bout of illness is not going to change who you are and you'll want to know how to address the changes in a practical way. Someone who knows all about the role of beauty in serious illness is Sophie Berezina, a beauty editor, author and breast cancer survivor. Sophie was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2010 and has written about her illness and about her resulting hormone and fertility struggles in her hugely popular The Times column, The Mother Project, published each Saturday, and is generously sharing her expertise and first-hand experience with us today. Sophie, welcome. Thank you. How are you? Thanks for coming. I'm really good, thank you. I am slightly nervous because although I have done quite a lot of beauty podcasts I don't ever really talk about the cancer side of things. And is there a reason why it was important to you to keep them relatively separate? Probably nothing more than just to protect my mental health. I think like cancer obviously was a really really difficult traumatic part of my life and although I did write about it um, from a beauty perspective which I'm sure we'll talk about once I was over it, I just didn't want that to define me anymore. And I suppose now, I mean, it was nine years ago now, and even still, I struggle to read about it in the paper. I struggle to hear stories of other people. Who so any, any kind of news story or yeah. anecdotal piece. Yeah. I think and that's something that people don't really talk about that much with cancer. I think very much the perception is you're ill when you're ill and then you get over it. And yeah, you've survived and Hooray, everything's back I'm to alive. normal. Yeah. yeah, And there is obviously that. Um, but I'm, it's almost like post-traumatic stress disorder, I suppose. Like there's a real, and some people feel it this way, and I'm sure some people really do feel 
privileged to have gone through this thing and realise that they have become a real warrior and really do want to talk about it. And I just went completely the other way. I didn't want to be like the cancer poster child. But at the same time, I see the real importance in being able to share and talk about it. And I did that at the time and it had such a huge response. I had a blog called Sophie Feels Better where I just wrote about some of the things I was learning from a beauty perspective that helped me through. And I just realised there was a real gap. And where possible throughout it all, you continue to work. And you work in the beauty industry where it's tricky if you don't feel your best. And so can you talk a little bit about how it was for you in that very extreme, Mm. albeit everyday situation of having cancer and going through chemotherapy, presumably? Yeah. When I was diagnosed, it was such a huge shock. Um, And I was there with my husband and I remember my now husband, he was my boyfriend at the time. And we'd only been together for a year, so it was quite a big thing. Yeah, it's a lot. Um... And I remember they told me, and I do actually struggle to remember properly because I think I've kind of suppressed the, uh, you know, the difficulty of that appointment. But I do remember that he said, is she going to survive? And I said, am I going to lose my hair? And it is because I was I was in listening to your intro earlier. And I think what it is, is, you know, this is going to be a long process. It's the chemotherapy for me was six months Um, The whole experience was about a year with surgeries and radiotherapy. I feel like if it was a short illness, or I I have been admitted to hospital for a short amount of time before, you don't think about your (laughs) appearance. You think about your health. Of course. But I think there's so much talk and awareness of cancer now that really you do associate your looks with it. So it does make sense that I don't think that that, you know, I remember my husband being really shocked that I said that. But I don't think that that's a shocking thing to say. I don't think it's a shocking stance. It's... Well, over 70% of women, when diagnosed with cancer, ask if they'll lose their hair before they ask if they'll live. Because it's terrifying. That is something really tangible. You know, you don't really think about your mortality. When I was 29, when I was diagnosed, 30, you haven't thought about your mortality before, but you have thought about, and this sounds really ridiculous, but you have had the the haircut from hell. Mm -hmm. And you remember how awful you felt with that. Maybe it is a... um, survival mechanism that you do want to grasp onto something that you understand and as much as cancer is a health crisis it's an identity crisis yes and I really think I did lose my hair quite quickly um I was expecting it to take longer I think it was after the first session of chemo maybe wow a week or two afterwards um and I was dreading it obviously and I lost uh I you know ran my finger through my hair and some came out and it was just devastating it was awful and that minute, my husband sat me down in a chair in the hallway and we just shaved it all off. Yeah. Because I didn't want to go through any more of that feeling. And then I had a new identity. But the funny thing about it is that you never obviously feel the way that you look in the mirror. And I remember the whole six months, I would get a shock every time I looked in the mirror if I didn't have my wig on or my eyebrows drawn on. I would get such a shock because that, when you lose your features, you become this kind of generic cancer victim. And to me, I just felt like me, but a bit sick. So it was a real thing to have to overcome that like that, that person in that mirror does not look like this person that I feel like inside. I think that's such a key point, having spoken to, to lots of cancer survivors and friends who didn't survive their cancer. A really big part of it was that kind of loss of privacy, mm. I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I did actually get asked out once when I was in my wig with my eyebrow drawn. I thought, oh, my God. That person has no idea that I've literally got 
one boob and I'm bald under here. <laughs> and I felt like I'd really won the beauty stakes at that point. <laughs> Tell us, so you chose to wear a wig? Yes. Not at home, it sounds as though. No, just because it's like hot and uncomfortable. Hot. But I was really lucky in my job that I had access to some help with my wigs because um, and going back to your question about how I dealt with going to work I just wanted to look as much like me as possible Um, and so I spoke to lots of my friends that you do get um, offered an NHS wig and some of those are amazing I had a synthetic wig and I had a few real hair wigs Um, but you know there's a real learning curve with wearing those even with experts helping me so I had a friend get me a lace front wig which is the Mm -hmm. most realistic that we all use in beauty shoots the most comfortable the good wife wig is what I call it it's what (laughs) it's what she wore Juliana Margulies wore in the good wife where they're very realistic looking yeah absolutely they're amazing um and actually behave better than my real hair so I could you know tongue it on a on a bust it was all great but the first time I wore it I went out to meet her for lunch and a load of friends and it was a, it was like my first outing and I was feeling really nervous and quite brave and defiant. And I went in and she took one look at me and took me to the toilets and was like, you have got it on back to front. <laughs> and because I hadn't, although I know about wigs. That's a good friend though. Yeah, she was great. But I've never worn one. I've never had to wear one. And then obviously I learned after that. It looks so much better the right way around. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine. <laughs> but there are tricks with wigs that I learned that make them a million times better, like colouring in the parting with an eyebrow pencil mm-hmm. because it makes it look more realistic. No one has a, you know, glowing white parting because you're completely bald under there. So you really see it through. And just dusting that in with an eyebrow pencil made the world of difference. So those are the kind of things that I really wanted to share that the NHS doesn't tell you because they don't necessarily know. And what else changed about you? Well, the no eyebrows and lashes was really difficult and weird because actually... My friends told me that was the worst bit. It's harder because you can put a wig on, but you're never going to be able to get a kind of simile of what you had before. So, And again, I drew my brows on with a pencil and it was only when they grew back that I realised I had been drawing them on too low and I, again I'm an expert in these things I just I advise people all the time how to face map how to brow map I just didn't do it myself probably without the guide of my real brows and I realised I'd been looking more cross <laughs> over my whole treatment than I needed to and it it's, was it's extraordinary isn't it because if you were diagnosed in uh, 2010 the difference mm. with what's available now yeah compared absolutely. to then it's microblading really expert yeah. Yeah. microblading now exists in a way that it simply didn't then you had that permanent makeup yeah. that was just like a, a stripe well it? I was offered brow tattooing by Karen Betts which was mm-hmm. amazing and mm-hmm. she is excellent yeah um, but I just thought I'm they're gonna grow back in six months and I really ha- held on to that you know as difficult as it was to lose my hair it was gonna come back lashes the most difficult because without they um, have a function yeah they absolutely have a function so your eyes tear all the time when you wear false lashes they sit basically in your lash line so without a lash line <laughs> There's nowhere for them to really sit. Um, so I learned to use a mascara wand, clean most of the formula off it and just gently press it against my lash line and it would kind of give the effect of shadow of lashes. And that was enough, really. And I would a little just go, definition. Yeah, a tiny bit of definition. If I put, if I drew in my waterline, it was too much definition and it just, it just didn't look right on my face being quite naked otherwise. But I would focus on lips and just a bit of, health and colour in my skin because 
you know, you go quite pallid. My skin colour changed. <laughs> How so? Um, I, I went quite yellow because your liver is processing so many toxins. Um, and it's, you know, I just went more and more yellow as the time went on. And it wasn't a nice kind of fake tan yellow. It was liver damage Jaundiced yellow. Jaundiced yellow. <laughs> yeah. And did you did you find any comfort in the rituals of putting on your makeup or did it just feel like another thing to do when you had so much on your mind? How What kind of role did that play? I felt comfort in the wig more than the makeup. I think the makeup I really struggled with because I couldn't make, you know, I wear makeup now as a healthy person and I make a better version of me, mm-hmm. you know. That's kind of what I use makeup for. It's just defining my features in a more feminine way I suppose is the way I go but to use makeup when I had chemo I couldn't I couldn't it was just sort of highlighting what I didn't have whereas a wig was quite amazing and then you know to be able to have these amazing lustrous waves that would last all day where my my hair goes frizzy to not have to wash my hair like yes that's a boon isn't it I mean I really focused on the positives to not have to shave my legs that was incredible but there are little hidden changes aren't there that get a lot less attention Mm -hmm. skin nails increased sensitivity and so on and I feel this scant information out there for Mm -hmm. those things can you describe some of those things that some women listening may be experiencing first of all chemo can affect your skin you know my my skin tone changed but also the texture and it was so dry Um, my skincare needs changed there was a lot of talk about what kind of skincare you can and can't use when you're having chemo I did what my doctor told me and you know there's lots of thinking that you shouldn't have antioxidant skincare but really I think taking antioxidant supplements is one thing and applying antioxidant topically is another. There hasn't been actually any scientific evidence that antioxidant supplements even have any detrimental effect. So I just really focused on using products that my skin needed and it was very thirsty. I wanted to use um, ceramide creams to kind of restore the barrier function, to retain moisture. I use serums. I use, I remember um, a very lovely PR at La Mer. And this is where I'm really lucky because obviously I do work in this industry and I had access to amazing products. Um, sent me the concentrate serum and I'd never used it before because it's so out of my price range. Um, and But I hate to say it, it was so great. It was such a saviour. It just felt like I was doing some real good for my face. Overnight. I quite often say when um, when women contact me about this, which they do all the time, and I'm sure you get it even more than I do, women say a really good friend of mine has been diagnosed with cancer. She's going through chemo. Her skin is really sensitive, a bit sad feeling. And I often say buy some creme de la mer because yeah. actually I just think, do you know what? If not now, when? Exactly. <laughs> you know, Now's the time to treat there's yourself. There's so much going on. And yes, it is so expensive. But for lots of women, especially when they're going through that very kind of thirsty, yeah. dry skin yeah. phase, to feel like something's a treat. You know, everyone focuses on the sadness and you know commiseratory cards and I don't know listen to podcasts of half the time which is great but I will say you do have a real difficult time concentrating when you're having chemo it's really strange I'm still surprised at myself that I was able to deal with it even you know everything the beauty side even being able to laugh about some things I had a mastectomy at the end unfortunately that I had chemo first and then um, to try and shrink the tumour which is a quite a relatively new way of doing it. it was the American way and I think now they do that quite a lot 
Um, so I felt really lucky that we'd done it that way round. But in, it could have been a lumpectomy and then a and then chemo. But we did the chemo first; it didn't work, so I had to have a mastectomy. And I remember before just thinking, "I'm not how how the hell am I going to wake up from a surgery with one breast?" Where I had to at my age, and I and I was like, "What about my underwear drawer? I'm never going to feel sexy again." Like all these thoughts. And somehow I woke up. It's probably the morphine, but I, I woke up and I was God just love morphine. Yeah. <laughs> I just dealt with it. It's just I, you know, something happens to you. You just do. I find the act of uh, beauty is self care uh, very interesting. I spoke at the top of the show about my friend uh, who thought she was going to um, have her leg amputated, woke up and, and found it still there. And I said, what did you do? And mm. she said, I painted my toenails. And I really understood it because she said, you know, f for months and months, these wonderful, skilled, incredibly important and kind people have just been doing what's needed mm -hmm. to my body, doing what they want, what they need to my body. And of course, I'm hugely grateful, but it is still my body. Mm -hmm. I think the control aspect is really interesting because you do have to hand everything over and just trust in these medical professionals. And for me, the way that I could retain some control of the situation or do something to help was to drastically amend my diet so that I was kind of eating the healthiest way possible, you know, considering that my liver is being pumped full of toxins. So I can I cut out all alcohol, anything else that might kind of add to the strain. And that felt for me like a way that I could retain some control. Um, and then the beauty part was definitely an indulgence and a bit that helped to retain my identity and um, something that other people could kind of get involved in. I, I had friends come and paint my nails while I was having chemo, got told off because you technically can't do that in a chemo ward, but it was just a nice thing to do. And it was a nice bonding session. Mm. And also to go back to your question earlier about what changes you have your nails really suffer mm -hmm. and it lasts for ages but the worst thing is you get these horizontal ridges because um the chemo attacks fast growing cells and your nails are very fast growing yeah because let's be clear here when you say toxins you don't mean in a bullshit beauty way oh, the way God, people talk yeah. about toxins no, no, no. in beauty which are perfectly fine we're talking about actual poison poison yeah that would make your skin go yellow and your nails essentially die during that three-hour process when you're having these toxins part three. <laughs> so shall we go to some listener questions? We've yeah. got lots. I'm sure you're just the right person to answer them and I will endeavour to help too. Avon has championed breast cancer awareness for over 25 years and donated £20 million to charities. This Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Avon and Copper Feel are launching Breast Breaks. The campaign aims to encourage women and men to take the time to check their breasts and pecs regularly to spot the early signs of breast cancer. You can find out more by visiting avon.uk.com forward slash causes. Take a hashtag breast break. So Sophie, I have a question from Marion. What would someone going through cancer really appreciate from their friends and family in terms of beauty gifts? So let's say we're compiling a care package for mm -hmm. a dear friend or relative. What do we want in there? Ooh, well, we kind of talked about the really indulgent skin creams, but I think a little bit of research into what is going to help, particularly I talked a little bit about ceramides. 
like there's other products like cashmere socks. Yeah. Um, no, carry on. I remember being sent some cashmere socks because a lovely friend had read that your feet can get really cold. And that, that was so touching. And again, it's just a really nice indulgent thing to look forward to putting on. I always think a posh candle similarly is nice. Yeah. And again, don't agonise over it, you know. I agree with you on uh, skin creams. I I always tend to choose something that's kind of quite fatty. You mentioned ceramides, mm-hmm. something that's kind of cushiony and mm-hmm. fatty and nice yeah. for that kind of barrier function. Yeah. And that sort of comfort. Um, a ridge filler, a nail ridge filler. Yes. I, I mean, I don't know if the ridges are so deep that it's not particularly going to do anything, but it's just a, it's a really thoughtful it's acknowledging, yeah, I guess. absolutely. Like this is going to happen to you. This this might help. People love getting beauty gifts at the best of times, and that doesn't change when you're sick. Exactly. And I sort of think you you know, there's good functional things that mm-hmm. you can give people. So you can give them, you know, I don't know, a bit of um, La Roche Posay or mm. E45 or those sorts of pharmaceutical brands. But also, I just think really lovely to give people something that they would never yeah. buy themselves. I quite often give um, Elemis bath milk yeah. because who spends 40 quid or whatever it costs on a on a lovely bath milk when you're going to yeah. chuck something in the trolley at Sainsbury's. And also something like a really bold lipstick because yeah. you're, you're saying you're not going to just be sick in bed the whole time. You are going to wear this and go out and feel more normal. And even if you're not, it's something that you can look forward to wearing afterwards. Yes. Nicola wants to know, what's the best way to minimise and deal with scarring? So presumably post-operative. Yeah. So, and again, this changes a lot. So when I had my mastectomy, I was given silicon plasters. And mm-hmm. the hospital said, oh, we don't normally give these out because they cost an absolute fortune. But there's research showing now that that might help with um, flattening the scar and helping it to heal better. So I wore these silicon patches the whole time and my scar was great. And since then I've had reconstruction and I haven't worn silicon plasters because I asked my doctor and he said, no, 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 we don't generally give those out. And my scar healed okay. Silicon does really help um, with fading scars and helping to flatten them if you could keloid. But there are some amazing gels did Declior still make Prologene gel? That was a brilliant product. I don't know if they still make it. If you can track it down, um, I really recommend Prologene gel. Sandia asks, is there a place where you can get all your skin, hair, etc. questions answered re-cancer? Um, I'll probably put some links in mm-hmm. when I post this on stories. There are a number of organisations. Is your blog still available to read? It is still available. I think some of the pictures have probably expired. But yes, the information is on there. And I did really want to, I think I should do this still. I really wanted to make a kind of idiot's guide to beauty through chemo and offer it to the Marsden who treated me as like a kind of pamphlet that they could give to their patients from a real person, a beauty expert. Gillian wants to know, I'm not long finished six rounds of chemo. I've had skin rashes and spots from the immune system booster steroids and currently have terribly dry skin around my constantly watering eyes. You mentioned the eye watering Mm -hmm. with the lashes. Any advice on caring for that would be brilliant, coupled with advice on the best lash brow regrowth serum. Did you use a regrowth serum? I didn't because I didn't want to put anything too active on my skin or near my eyes. Um, And also it it does grow back. You know, my hair actually started to grow in before I finished the chemo, which was really weird. But it has grown back the same as before. I don't think that it's necessary to try and hurry on the growth. You will be surprised how quickly your hair grows back to a place where you're really happy with it. But in terms of treating your skin, I would go for serums that can really kind of penetrate deeper and just feel 
like you're sending some good nourishing um, ingredients to the deeper levels of your skin, but not anything too active. So Sally said, I had breast cancer six years ago and they sent me through a chemical change. I'm constantly worried about using any chemical products on my skin and so steer clear of retinols, etc. because I'm a bit scared about what gave me cancer in the first place. A little more clarity by the beauty industry on what's safe to do would be great. Um, retinol did not give you cancer. Yeah, I mean, I would say there's a lot of scaremongering. There really um, is. And you have to think about the millions of women who used retinol and didn't get cancer or even used aluminium in their deodorant and didn't yeah. get cancer. I, You can't help but question what gave it to you in the first of place, course. especially if you're younger, because the doctors always go like, oh, gosh, like it's like, you know, it's surprising to them. But I think the main thing to do is to try to get as much of yourself back as possible afterwards. And if that means if a retinol worked for you before, it depends on what your skin's need afterwards. I would worry about that more than what those activists are going to do to you. I really <laughs> feel for her. Yeah. I feel for you, Sally, because I think we naturally look for answers yeah, and course. reasons, don't we? And if it was anything to do with retinol, doctors would ask you if you've been using retinol before. Yeah. So Philippa says, specifically, when cancer has sent you into chemical menopause, in my case at 35 years old, what preventative measures can you take to stop your skin prematurely ageing? I would say just the same anti-aging, I know that that's a dirty word in the beauty industry now, but you know, it's true. Anti-aging products that anyone else would use. It's about looking after your skin and nourishing it. I did actually just discover that I now have a need for rich creams when mm-hmm. I used to always avoid them. Um, I've been using Augustinus Bader, um, the cream, which I love for ages. And recently I've noticed that my skin feels a bit, I don't know, thinner. I kept getting kind of tiny spots that then would go and then I'd get another one. It's like my skin couldn't heal. But I was just in some kind of denial. I was like, no, this product really works for me. I didn't think it could have anything to do with the product. I just went away and the only thing I had with me was the Rich version. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh God, I can't use this. I'm just going to give me spots because Rich Queen's always had. And I used it and my skin was like renewed overnight. Drinking it out. Exactly. So I think it's about kind of working out what your skin needs and it's trial and error. And can you briefly um, elaborate on what she means there? She says, cancer has sent me into a chemical menopause. What, what does she mean by that? for anyone who's not quite I assume if it's the same as me um, my cancer was estrogen receptive so the I'm on endocrine therapy now which is hormone suppressing therapy so I'm on tablets that suppress my estrogen when you go into menopause you replace estrogen (laughs) generally yes exactly because you've lost it so um, and obviously if you are trying to suppress the estrogen you can't take those kind of HRT whatever the therapy will be to try and replace it so you have to deal with the symptoms. So I would say also I have noticed that my skin's changed but it's not drastic. Most of my changes were hot flushes and maybe a little bit of mood and things that I was worried about happening but again they're manageable. It's not like overnight you just go oh my god I've turned into I don't know my mother. (laughs) Laurie says and this comes up a lot She says, some cancer weight loss info for me, please. I lost quite a bit of weight quickly and it's really showing on my neck. I think that's also quite interesting because lots of people listening to this will probably think, oh, hang on a second, I had the opposite because the treatment often makes people put on weight. Steroids Steroids in particular, yeah. Um, The neck is quite a difficult area, isn't it? Because there are 
lots of creams that you can use. There's firming creams. Um, it's it's good just to do the kind of motion of even massaging cream into your throat or a bit of lymphatic drainage, anything like that. But I, I mean, I've got to be honest that there is no cream that is going to give you the result that you're looking for. Yeah, I I think you're talk, you're looking at injectables. Yeah, I, t- to make any real change. However, yeah. if 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 Laurie, you're specifically only looking for topical treatments, I would say just plump the skin up as much as you can with hyaluronic acid and mm-hmm. and that that sort of product and again ceramize just for that kind of plump look. And so regarding injectables um for Laurie's neck, um she doesn't say what form of cancer she's had, whether she's had lymph nodes removed mm-hmm. and so on. And so what would she be able to do about that? Would she still be able to go down the injectable route? Presumably it's about what the doctor thinks. Absolutely. I mean, we're not in a position to give medical advice. I will say that I have had Botox. Mm -hmm. As with anything like that, it's really important to check with your oncologist or your doctor before you try any treatments that might affect your treatment. And I would say more than ever, I always say if you're going to have any injectable treatment, it should be with a medical professional um, rather than someone who's been on a short course. Oh my gosh, um, It should be someone medically qualified, but more than ever, if you are someone who has survived cancer and has that mm-hmm. whole layer of consideration. Mm-hmm. So Maury says, I had treatment for cancer 12 years ago and unfortunately my hair never came back. So I'm really interested in hair replacement, toppers, extensions, etc. I can talk a bit about this because I wear extensions. Do you? I do. I did whilst mine was growing out. Did you? Yeah, I tried loads of different things. I did a weave. So you had tape extensions? No, I had. I let my hair grow, but then growing it out becomes really difficult because you're trying to grow all the way around. It goes really round. So first of all, while it was really short, I had a weave, um, which was amazing, but was really uncomfortable and grows out quite strangely it goes very bulky so it was effectively sewn in exactly yeah and then as soon as it was a couple of inches in length I had traditional hair extensions but they use like half size tiny little yeah. filler bonds that's yeah. what I have I have yeah. absolutely minuscule ones yeah and I don't lengthen my hair with them I thicken my hair yeah. with them but the main reason that I wear extensions is actually not even for thickness the main reason I use them is that um once you style your hair it stays there mm. my hair's so soft and straight yeah that the moment I style it or in the past, it would just disappear mm-hmm. the style would disappear I think something else to note is that lots of people sort of feel ashamed or annoyed or like they're cheating like if you're using them like you are for volume and to hold a style just remember that pretty much any celebrity that anyone looks up to in a kind of beauty aspect that is not their hair every every bit of good famous hair it's not that i'm hair. prepared to say <laughs> has a little bit of help from a little extensions. bit yeah Thank you so much for coming. I know it's not nothing to come here and talk about something so personal and something that was no doubt really traumatic, but I have no doubt it will be helpful uh, to listeners. Where can people find you online? So you can find my Mother Project column on the Times website, and then I am on Instagram on Sophie Berezina. And please keep your questions coming on this topic or any other. Let us know if we haven't yet done a show on a topic you're particularly interested in. You can find me as Sally Hughes everywhere online except Facebook where I'm Sally Hughes Get The Look. 
and please leave your questions there and I will try and find you and do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast just hit the subscribe button and if you can rate us and review us that would be even better it will help people to find us in the meantime this has been Sally Hughes thank you very much for listening this podcast was brought to you by Avon 